Oh, good times. What does it mean? Pictures that tell a story beyond the words, right? Well, uh, it's good to see you all today. How's everybody doing? Great. I'm looking at the congregation today, and it looks like we lean a little left today. That's really funny. Um, no, it's really good. It's good to see you. My name is Chad. I'm one of the pastors here, and I really want to just start by saying thank you all so much. I know Pastor Chris last week announced that I've finally finished my doctoral work, and so thank you so much for your... You don't have to do... Oh, thank you. Um, Thanks for your encouragement and for your prayers. It's been a long process. And in all honesty, uh, it's not just your prayers and your encouragement through it all. My doctoral work was really based on the work that you do, the work that we do together as a church in the way a thriving church is helping declining churches in our area and really all over the world. And so thank you for being who you are and inspiring that and helping me through all of that. And to answer a question that some people have asked, no, please don't call me Dr. Chad. You don't need to do that. I do have one son that will occasionally call me Dr. Dad, but that's because he knows I prescribe ice cream and chocolate for most everything, and so that's just one of those things. And then Pastor Chris today is in Tahlequah uh, with Emily and with Nathan. Uh, the baby's not yet here, or at least as of last service, the baby was not yet here, uh, but they're there to encourage them and to just kind of, uh, well, they're hoping for the best, right? That's what they're doing. So be praying for them. That'll, that'll be a great thing, and it's great to see you. Well, today, go ahead and open up in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 2. That's where we're going to be. And I really just have to confess that for the next several weeks, we're in a topic. We're going to cover a similar topic for the next several weeks, the same topic for the next several weeks. That's really, uh, it's kind of a complicated topic. It's a quality of character that in all honesty, our generation just does not respect. It's a quality, it's a biblical characteristic that our generation just really doesn't really like that much. And, and one of the things that Scripture does, uh, God was making memes before we knew what memes were, right? Sometimes when a topic is complicated, he'll draw several pic pictures for us or he'll paint several pictures of what it means to live up to this biblical quality of character. And so he's done that. So for the next several weeks, we're going to see several different pictures of what this quality of character means. And, and I, all service long, we've been trying to help you understand what a meme really is. A few weeks ago was Mark. March Madness, right? And our staff, we had a March Madness bracket. And along with our bracket, we had also a text stream. And the, the name of the text stream was Staff Trash Talk. That was, our, that was our text stream because we're not competitive at all, right? And so uh, we were getting into the middle of this. And so sometimes in that Staff Trash Talk meme or that Staff Trash Talk uh, text stream, Words weren't just enough, and somebody would drop a picture or a video to help us understand how they really feel and what they really think. For example, Andrew Wade, uh, in the middle of March Madness, he's really not much into basketball. He'll confess. He'll say, I really don't, I don't really get into basketball, but I'll play. I'll be a part of this. I really love it when they drive down the court to score a touchdown. You know, that's how he's... That's how he's into basketball. So in the middle of March Madness, his bracket hit number one. And it was awesome. His bracket hit number one, and somebody dropped this picture in the staff trash talk uh, text message stream. It's like, it's world ends in five minutes, details at 10, right? You know, it's just one of those moments. How could he possibly do that? And then just a few games later, his whole bracket crashed and burned, and someone else dropped a picture on staff. I won't say who, Amber Hudler, but it looked just like this. <laughs> oh, that's, that's terrible, but so funny. That's awesome. Sometimes you can just say it better with, with pictures, right? Sometimes you can just say it better with pictures. And so for the next several weeks, we're going to talk about the same topic, 
but we're going to see several different pictures that help us understand how to apply this topic. And it's a quality of character that's really difficult for us to respect these days. It's the quality of submission. What does it mean to submit to someone else? Well, I'm going to give you a real quick definition. This will be the definition that we use throughout the entire series. But submission is this idea. Submission is when I yield my will to your will so that we will honor God and one another together. That's what submission is. Submission is when I yield my will to your will so that we will honor God and one another together. So for the next several weeks, we're going to see different pictures in Scripture about how do we submit and what does it look like to be submissive. Now, how many of you will confess you're just so excited to be submissive to somebody else? Just raise your hand for me. Yeah, it's one of those qualities of character that we don't really celebrate much these days. I'm guessing that there's not really been a moment in your life when you've looked at someone else and gone, man, that guy, is he's so awesome, he's so cool, he's so submissive. Right? That's not really, it's not really how we do that, right? But that's, that's one of those things that God has said is an admirable quality of character. It's a biblical quality of character that we need to figure out. How do we yield our will to someone else's will so that we will honor God and one another together? How can we do that? So let's look at 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 13. Stand with me out of honor for the reading of God's word. And I'm going to tell you that today I'm reading from the New King James Version of Scripture. Um, it's the, the, the reason why I do that is it's the version that I study and memorize out of. I love the ESV and the NIV and all the different other translations, but this is the one I'm the most familiar with. And so if you've got an electronic copy of God's word, you can switch over to New King James and you'll see it word for word, or you can see it on the screen, or you can just follow along with me in your paper copy. 1 Peter 2. 13 through 17, it says this, Therefore submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, for whether to the king as supreme or to governors, as to those who are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men as free, yet not using liberty as a cloak for vice, but as bondservants of God. Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. Thank you so much. You may be seated. So when Chris came to me and said, hey, Chad, I'd like you to preach on May 22nd. I'm always, I always enjoy the privilege of being able to preach and to open up God's word with you. It's always an honor. And he says, and the topic is submission. I was like, wow, that won't be complicated at all. And then he says, it's 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 13 through 17. And I read it. And the picture that God's painting is here, how to submit to the government. That's not complicated at all. And this was my reaction. <laughs> this is it's like wow thank you Chris I appreciate that so eventually I submitted to him and here we are right here's here we are today and so you know um, submission if you really think about it I think before we can talk about what it means to submit to the government we just kind of have to catch a picture for what submission really is and if you think about it in the biblical sense submission is a place of self-confidence and it's a, it's a self-confident act of self-control and self-sacrifice. And when I say self-confidence, it's not that you're confident in yourself. It's that you're confident in the one who has yourself in his hands. 
Actually, submission is one of those qualities of character that's foundational to our faith. Your faith in Jesus Christ just doesn't work without submission. Remember Luke 9.23 says that if it's Jesus talking. He says, if anyone wants to follow me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow him. You see, so submission is foundational to our faith. If you want to follow Jesus, the, the beginning of that isn't walking up to Jesus and saying to him, well, here's God what I need from you, and, and outlining your list. That's, that's not where submission begins. Uh, that's not where our faith begins. Our faith begins with us going, you're God, and I'm not. You can, and I can't. I need your grace because my life is broken by my sin. I need your mercy because as good as I can try to be, I still trip over my own two feet over and over and over again. So here I am, God, confessing my need for you because I can't do this on my own. It's a kind of self-sacrifice. It's a kind of self-confidence that comes from recognizing that God is in control of your life. And even the securing of our salvation was an act of godly submission. You remember what Jesus Christ did for us on the cross, right? You remember Philippians chapter 2. You remember how he stepped out of heaven to become a human just like me and you. And he lived up to the law that was written. He did everything that the law ever commanded him to do, which means he was perfect and he never had to actually surrender his life. He didn't, su he didn't have to suffer the penalty and the punishment of death. He didn't have to do any of that. Yet Philippians chapter 2 says that when he came to earth, he submitted to God and he surrendered his right to be God. And he surrendered his reputation as a man to be accused of a crime that he didn't commit. And he submitted to the local human authorities to be put on trial for your sin and for mine. And in submission to the human government and in submission to God our Father, he laid down on a cross willingly and submitted his life to be sacrificed for you and for me. So submission is one of those critical qualities of our faith that without it, your faith simply won't stand. It just can't. Submission is when I yield my will to your will so we will honor God and one another together. Now, one of the things as we look at these different pictures of submission, we're going to see what does it look like to submit to the government. And in the next few weeks, we'll see what does it look like to surrender to our boss and, to, and, to, and submit to our bosses. And what does it look like to submit in our relationships, in marriage, and, 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 and what does it look like in, in those kinds of things. In this particular picture, you also see at the end of this, you see how Jesus fought. Because in submitting, he was also fighting for something. And when we think about our government today, specifically when we think about submitting to the government, it's not the word submission that really comes to mind, right? It's really kind of some form of independent rebellion. It's I'm going to, you know, it's, it's Popeye. I've had all I can stands and I can't stands no more. So I'm going to take my place and I'm going to stand right here and I shall not be moved. Yet 1 Peter 2, 21 through 23 it gives us the example of how Jesus fought and was submissive at the same time. It shows us how to fight and how to fight submissively, which I think is interesting. Look at that. 1 Peter 2, verses 21 through 23. This version of it I'm reading out of the NIV version, NIV. It says, To this you were called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. 
You see, when we're submissive, we're simply following in the footsteps of Jesus. Because when it says, to this you were called, it's actually talking about, it's, it's continuing that passage, you were called to submission. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. Now watch how he fought. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not re retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. So there's a context for how we fight when we submit. We can fight and submit at the same time. It's just that the tactics that we use and the way we use them are different from the way the world does it. And in particular, before we can really go much further in this passage, I really think we just need to understand the context of things and we need to stop and just kind of feel it for a minute, what Peter's really saying when he says this. Look back at 1 Peter 2.13 again. It says, Therefore submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake. And we'll just stop right there. Submit yourself to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake. I want to stop and just feel it for a minute. This is the Apostle Peter. So just feel this with me. Peter didn't grow up in a Christian home. Peter never lived in a Christian nation. None of the disciples did. Peter, at the time that this was written, was living in Rome. And for the next 300 years, the nation of Rome would capture, hunt, persecute, torture, and kill Christians. Now, there were seasons when it was more severe when, when there was more persecution, and then there were seasons when there was more peace. So it wasn't high persecution all the time, but there were seasons when they were more persecuted and seasons when there was more peace. But at the point that Peter's writing this, therefore submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake. Nero was the emperor of Rome at the time. And there were times when Nero would hunt and capture Christians and he would put them on poles and then he would light them on fire to be the light source for his nighttime parties. And so that's the government that Peter is in when he says, submit yourself to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake. It won't be long after he writes this till Peter is captured by the Roman government and he's crucified. Tradition says he was crucified upside down. Therefore, submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake. Do you feel that with me? So while our nation has its problems and while our culture is coming against some things in, in our Christian faith, it's not quite like that, right? It's not quite that severe. Like the other day, I was driving up 169. I was coming north on 169. And uh, one of Oklahoma's finest got right behind me and turned on his lights. <laughs> and I got pulled over. And he came up to my window and said, Sir, I'd just like to congratulate you on what a fine job of driving you're doing. That's not really what happened, right? I was going a little too fast, and he was just reminding me to slow down. And this story just gets more spectacular because he said, I'd like to see your license and insurance verification. And I said, Well, I've got my license right here in my wallet that's in my backpack that's at the church office. <laughs> Oh, good. This is just getting better and better. And so he goes, well, uh, I, had an, I have my driver's license on my phone, a digital copy of it. So I was able to show him that. And let me see your insurance. So I pulled the piece of paper out of the glove compartment and I handed it to him. And he looks at it and he goes, well, this is out of date. 
Oh, good. Um, I, I know my, I just paid my insurance bill, so uh, with a little help from John Tooley, John confirmed that my insurance is good and up to date, and so just got more and more spectacular, and he eventually, mo- he wrote me this nice little love note, and that was awesome, and handed it to me, and I got to pay for that. That was so good. <sighs> but you know what he didn't do? He didn't go, oh, it's at a church? You're a pastor? Get out of the car. Oh, you're a Christian? You're under arrest. He didn't do that, right? And so what I was experiencing that moment wasn't persecution. What I was experiencing was the natural effect of me going real fast, right? Um, Therefore, submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake. In Peter's time, this was very, very different. So whatever your knee-jerk reaction to some preacher standing on a platform saying, you know what, we should submit to the government. The Bible says so. Whatever your knee-jerk reaction is, whatever your experience is, is not nearly as severe as the experience that Peter and Paul and Jesus and all the other disciples who were martyred for their faith, not even close to any of those guys. And you know what it tells me? It tells me that there's just some principles that we need to catch, and one of them is that God works through every human authority. God is at work through every human authority. And and when I say God is at work through every human authority, I don't simply mean the U.S. government, and I don't simply mean uh, governments of our current generation. I mean every government in all of history. God has been at work through every human authority. It was his work in every human authority that led Jesus into Rome at the time Rome was in power, that got him to the cross, that got the gospel down the Roman roads, that carries it to this space and this place in time and in history. God's at work in every human authority, and it also leads me to believe that Christianity has survived and even thrived in every form of government that man has ever conceived. Christianity, I don't don't know what your concerns for our culture may be or for our faith may be in light of the law or in light of politics or in light of the way our nation is functioning today, but can I just give you some confidence and maybe some courage to recognize that Christianity has survived and even thrived in every form of government that humanity has ever conceived. It's just true. Think about this. Think about the Old Testament with me. Remember Joseph? Remember the story of Joseph? Joseph in the coat of many colors. He was hated by his brothers because he kept having these big dreams and they sold him into slavery and then as a slave he gets accused of a crime he didn't commit so he goes to jail and in jail he gets forgotten and then suddenly he's able to interpret the dream of Pharaoh and so now Pharaoh brings him into his court and Joseph interprets this dream and and the dream and that interpretation his skill as a leader means Joseph rises to become the second most influential person in all of Egypt Well, at that time, Pharaoh was a king. He was essentially a dictator who many people in the nation of Egypt, they worshiped Pharaoh as a god, some of them. Yet somehow, Joseph found a way to live his faith and to live faithfully in that form of government. He found a way to live his faith and to live faithfully in that form of government. You remember Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they were taken captive from the nation of Israel into the nation of Babylon. They were taken captive, and they rose through the ranks. They were smart. They were good at what they, were do, they, at what they could do. They were blessed by God. They rose up through the ranks. And at one point, Daniel was one of the three most influential people in the nation of Babylon. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they sat with the governors and the satraps. They influenced the nation of Babylon. Now, when God wants to describe a nation that is 
the most overt, most terrible forms of evil in Scripture. When God wants to do that, he doesn't point to Nazis. That's what we do. That's our generation. He points to the Nazi. We point to the Nazi government. When God wants to talk about the worst possible government ever, the most evil, he points to Babylon. Yet here's Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They're some of the most influential men in that nation. They found a way to live their faith and to live faithfully under the laws and in the nation that God had placed them. And it just leads me to believe that that's our calling. That's your calling. You're called right now today to live your faith and to live faithfully in this nation. And that's actually where our form of government is a little bit different than other forms of government uh, throughout all of history. And if you're watching online, some of you may be watching from other countries where, you're, where, where your faith is, is being influenced by the fact that you're in a nation that's, that's different than ours. Your form of government is different than ours. But, but it's true for you too, whether you live in America or you live in any other country. Even though our forms of government may be unique from what Daniel experienced or what Jesus experienced or what Joseph experienced, the, the principle is still the same. Christianity has survived and thrived in every form of government, and you are called to live your faith and to live faithfully in the nation where God's placed you. And the American form of government is just really unique. It's a government of, by, and for the people. It's this idea. It's a democratic republic. It's the idea that the most significant of matters should be determined and decided and governed by the most ordinary of people. That the most extraordinary matters that our world could ever face should be governed by you and me, a government of, by, and for the people. It means every one of us is like a little king, and we can do what we want when we want the way we want, because we're free, right? Freedom is what America has always been founded on and is all about. That's such an important concept. Even the nature of how our nation began is this beautiful tribute to the idea that men are free, women are free, we can govern ourselves. We wrote this very polite letter to the King of England, you remember it? I think we called it the Declaration of Independence where we essentially said in very kind words, I'm sorry, King, you can't tell me what to do, right? And isn't the name of that so fitting for who we are? It's the Declaration of Independence. You can't tell me what to do. That independent spirit, in all honesty, is the source for every political tension that our nation feels, right? We go to the ballot box, we go to the, we go to the mall, we stand up and fight, we, 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 we protest, we do all these things, and it all centers around, you want to do it your way and I want to do it my way, and so in our nation, I whip up some votes and you whip up some votes, and it's this great entertaining sport that we have. Who gets the most votes, and now I get my way, or you get your way, and if I don't get my way the way I want, I try to use some judges to help me get my way. And, and if that doesn't work, I try to use some local politics to try to get my way because I want my way. And then there you are trying to want your way. And suddenly every political tension we face comes from this independent spirit that says, you can't tell me what to do. So how do you in a nation of, by, and for the people, how do you live your faith and live faithfully in the nation that God has for us. We'll look at 1 Peter 2, 15 through 17. God actually gives us a picture. He paints a picture for how we can submit to God and one another. He paints a picture for us for how we can do this. For this is the will of God, 
This is how you do this. This is how you submit inside your government. This is how you submit to one another. That by doing good, you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men as free, yet not using liberty as a cloak for vice, but as bondservants of God. Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. There's a series of action steps, principles that we can take to be those people who live our faith and live faithfully within this nation, in this generation, and in this time. And so I'm going to try to hit them quickly, but I'm going to have to pause on some of them. So I'm going to kind of go a little fast and a little slow. I'm going to go, go back and forth between fast and slow. But here's the first idea that you see in verses 15 through 17. First of all, political tensions do not give you an excuse to be hateful to people. Political tensions do not give you an excuse to be hateful to people. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, not by being hateful, but by doing good, you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. Now, I struggled a little bit with how to say this particular point because that word hateful you can fill in with a variety of words. Political tensions do not give you an excuse to, to marginalize people. Political tensions don't give you an excuse to ignore people or to demoralize people or to disrespect people or to belittle people or to act superior to people or to make fun of people. Political tensions don't give you an excuse as a believer to do that. You don't, you don't have an excuse to do that. First Peter 2, verse 16. Just keep on going. Verse 16, it says, As free, yet not using liberty as a cloak for vice, but as bondservants of God. That idea of being a bondservant. A bondservant was someone who willingly chose to surrender his rights in order to serve someone else. He's saying, as someone who is a bondservant of God, who has willingly laid down their rights to be a servant to God, I'm not going to use this freedom that I have in Christ, this freedom that I have as an American, this freedom as I have because of, because of where and the generation and the time that I grew up in, I'm not going to use this as a cloak for vice, which tells me our liberty doesn't give us an excuse to imitate evil. The liberty that we have, the freedom that we have, doesn't give us an excuse to imitate evil. There may be moments, there may be moments when we have to bow down to the law of the land. But in bowing down to the law of the land, we don't have to stoop down to their level to fight the way they fight. We don't have to do that. Actually, Proverbs 3 verse 31 says something interesting. It says, do not envy the oppressor. And when you think of oppression, don't you, isn't the government the first thing that comes to mind when you think of the word oppression? That's not a word we use very often, but when we use it, we almost always use it in the context of the government. Do not envy the oppressor, Proverbs 3.31 says, and then it says, and choose none of his ways. Do not envy the oppressor and choose none of his ways. So you can answer this one out loud. How many of the ways of the oppressor are we supposed to choose? None. Yeah, we're not supposed to choose any of the ways. We are supposed to fight, but we're not supposed to fight the way the world fights. We may bow to a particular law, but we don't have to stoop to the level of how they fight and, how, and, and the things that they do. There's a better way to fight. Remember 1 Peter chapter 2 at the end, it says that Jesus didn't retaliate, that he didn't demand his rights, that he didn't hurl insults, that he didn't fight the way the world fights, yet in his fighting, he got everything he wanted which was salvation for you and for me. So that idea that our liberty, it doesn't give us an excuse to imitate evil. That's what 1 Peter 2.16 says. Being free, yet not using liberty as a cloak for vice. That idea that we don't bow. Think about Daniel for just a minute. 
they passed a law in Babylon that says, Daniel, you can't pray to your God. Well, there was an order of priority in Daniel's head. I'm going to obey God's law first and man's law second. And so he went, he was brought before the king. Daniel, you, gotta, you can't pray before your God anymore. You can't do that. And Daniel's response was such an interesting response. He didn't demand his rights. He didn't fight. He wasn't rude. He wasn't mean. He wasn't nasty. He actually says, oh, king, live forever. But I'm not going to bow to your law. I'm going to bow to God's law and him alone. He didn't come in as a lion fighting for his rights. But because he wouldn't bow, he was thrown to the lions and God shut their mouths. And the king looks at Daniel after Daniel has lived a night in the lion's den and says, oh, Daniel, your God must be God. So he didn't bow to the world's law first. He bowed to God's law first. And out of it, the king was persuaded, your God must be God. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they make this giant statue that you're supposed to worship. They pass a law. Everybody has to do it. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego say, no, I'm not going to bow. And it's interesting. They didn't bow. They were taken before the king. They were prosecuted. They didn't fight for their rights. They said the same thing Daniel did. Oh, king, live forever. They spoke with respect. They didn't bow. They didn't bend. And when they were thrown into the fiery furnace, they didn't burn. And it's because they walked with God. Now, sometimes when we don't bow before the human government, suffering happens. Sometimes sacrifice takes place. With Jesus and his sacrifice on the cross, that was not simply a spiritual act. It was a legal act. Remember, Pontius Pilate washes his hands of it. There were laws that they said had been broken. And the way Jesus fought was, I didn't, I'm not going to fight the way the world fights. I'm going to fight but I'm fighting for something higher, for something bigger. And the way I'm, I don't have to play by the world's rules. And because I don't have to play by the world's rules, I don't have to fight the way they fight. Liberty doesn't give us an excuse to imitate evil. And so here's a principle that I think we need to catch in every picture that we paint, whether we're talking about submission to government or submission in marriage or submission to bosses, whatever the picture is in Scripture as you read ahead and take a look at that. The first principle is to submit to God first. It's the the, in the order of priority. We've got to learn to submit to God first. That's what Luke 9.23 means. Deny yourself, take up your cross daily, and follow Him. We yield ourselves to God first, and then out of that it becomes the context of how we yield and every other situation becomes clear. And I would dare say, if you can't submit to God first, then either you won't or it will be exceedingly difficult for you to submit to anyone else in any other context. Submit to God first and then your heart is in a place where you can submit in all of these other contexts and all of these pictures. Submitting to God first also means we probably need to know his word Shouldn't we know what the Word says? And then when the Word speaks clearly, shouldn't we adjust our lives to, to match what the Word says? And if the Word says go and do, shouldn't we go and do? And if the Word says stop and don't, then shouldn't we stop and don't? As believers and followers of God, if we're going to submit to God's law before we submit to man's law, shouldn't we know what God's law is in the first place? We submit to God first, and we draw near to him. As we submit to God's word and as we submit to God's law, you know what happens? It changes the way we think. It changes the way we act. It moves in the way we vote and who we are, and it allows us to see the world through a perspective that's greater than our own. Instead of this temporary moment that all I see is right now, 
and the pain of this moment and the difficulty of what I want and I'm not getting what I want because you're getting what you want and my independent spirit saying, I want to do it my way and you're trying to do it your way and the law says this, in that moment when all I can see is right now, God backs us up through his word and says, yeah, but the picture is so much better and the picture is so much bigger. Submit to my law, submit to me first and everything else will become so much clearer. And so in a government of, by, and for the people, as we submit to God first, not as Christians, but as citizens, one of our responsibilities, and this is how we live this out, this is how we live this submission to government out right now, you should vote, volunteer, and support candidates and issues that reflect a biblical worldview. That's what you should do. Vote, volunteer, and support candidates and issues that support a biblical worldview. If you're not voting, you should vote. You're not fulfilling your responsibility as a citizen if you don't vote. You've got to vote. I'm not going to tell you how to vote. Apart from saying if you're a Christian, you ought to have a Christian worldview, right? Isn't that how everybody votes? Doesn't everybody vote from their worldview, right? Everybody has a way they see the world. They, they have a series of beliefs that they believe, and because of what they believe, when they step into the ballot box, they decide, I'm going to cast a vote this way based on my beliefs. So vote the way everybody else's vote votes. Vote based on your worldview. And as a believer, your worldview should first be influenced by God and his word. So when you step into that ballot box, when you step into that polling place, vote volunteer for and support issues and candidates that reflect your biblical Christian worldview. Know what the word says, and then, then let that be expressed. That's the way our government's designed to work, right? In a government of, by, and for the people. You have your way of thinking, I have my way of thinking, we vote on it, and this is the way we're going to all go together. Now, I'm going to say a couple of things that are just kind of a sidebar on this. This isn't scripture, this is just reality. It's just kind of a fact. Um, one of them is that news today is one of those things that's interesting because news today is entertainment. It's a part, it's considered part of the entertainment industry. So because it's part of the entertainment industry, it means in your news, you can find facts that support the facts you already believe, right? You can always do that. And so my suggestion would be, if you want to be a good citizen who votes from a biblical worldview, you need to be really well-informed, and being well-informed is, sure, you can listen to the facts that you agree with and those news sources that always tell you the thing that you want to hear, but take some time to stop and pause and investigate the opinions of smart people who disagree with you. I think that's just wisdom, to take time to stop and investigate the opinions of smart people who disagree with you. If they're smart, there's a reason. And if they disagree with you, there's a reason. And, and if you can't ever find anybody who you consider a smart person who disagrees with you, then perhaps you should check out your own level of arrogance and self-centeredness, right? Uh, I thought I was conceited until I found out I was perfect, right? It's, yeah, don't uh, be careful of that. So just recognize that the news, in the news industry today, you can find the facts that support whatever you already believe. So make the time to investigate the issues. Know how it's going to affect the law and the nation and the people and recognize there's more to our nation than just you and there's more to our way of thinking than just you and, and understand that there's sometimes smart people who disagree with you and maybe they're right. So investigate it. Take time to do that. Here's the other sidebar. When I say vote, volunteer, and support candidates and issues that, that reflect your biblical worldview, I'm going to take it a step further, and I'm going to say there are some people in this room right now who have already done this, and I'm so proud of them and so thankful for them. Some of you 
should be involved by running for an office. Some of you should do that. Some of you should be involved. In, you should run for school board. Just run for city council. Run for a state senate seat. Run for, a, run for something. Some of you should get a job at a tag agency or another government agency. Because you know those great words that Ronald Reagan, Reagan quoted that are fearful? You know, I'm with the government. I'm here to help. <laughs> what if you could be the one in any government agency that would change the atmosphere and the environment from being, oh, government's terrible to work with to being government is the place we come together? Maybe you should get a job working in a government agency. Maybe you should run for an office. Maybe you should become a journalist. Maybe you should do that so that you can write the stories in a way that, that influence people well towards, I'm so thankful for, for the way that happens inside our city. And some of you are already doing this, and I'm so thankful for the way that you do that. But some of you, God's raising up to be the next generation of people who are elected, who decide to work for, and who decide to go into politics or the military, or our police. That's such a noble calling, and I hope that you'll do that. So vote, volunteer, and support candidates and issues that reflect a biblical worldview. Some other things we see in this passage that I think are just good practices when we're talking about politics and we're trying to figure out how to submit to God by submitting to our government. Be hard to offend. That idea, be hard to offend. Go back to uh, verse 16. As free yet not using your liberty as a cloak for vice? How many times has our argument been less about what Scripture says and the possibilities and more about, well, it's my right. You have no right to step on my rights, and so I'm now offended that you would step on my rights. I have the right to be offended, and I'm so excited about being offended that I forgot what I was offended about, but you're wrong because I'm offended, right? Be hard to offend. Actually, being offended over so many things is a kind of, it's a kind of weakness, and being hard to offend is a kind of strength. Every time we spend so much energy being offended and fighting about being offended is that every hour and minute that we spend on being offended is an hour. We're not talking about the real issue, whatever the real issue may be. So be that one who's, um, it's a weird word, that's unflappable. Who when you walk into a political situation or a political conversation, you're not deliberately trying to punch people in the eye with what you think you know. And at the same time, when someone does try to deliberately punch you in the eye with something they think they know, you're like, well, okay, let's talk about the issues. Okay, let's figure out what God has to say. Let's figure out how we can line our lives up like that. And now, in this strange melting pot of a government that we are, how do we, how do we all live and, and do this together? Be hard to offend. You know, ultimately, whether or not we're offended is a matter of confidence, right? Am I confident that God's in control? Am I confident that my position is right? Am I confident that your words matter and your words may hurt, but the words aren't the point? What we do together is the point. How do we move as a United States together? That's the point. And, and if I'm confident that Isaiah 9-6 is true, you remember Isaiah 9-6, it's the one we use at Christmas time. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders. If I'm really confident in the sovereignty of God, then I should be hard to offend. Here's another one, 1 Peter 2-15 for this is the will of God. What is the will of God? He's talking about submission again. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. In your political conversations, show respect to everyone. Actually, I'm going to take the, the disclaimer off the front of it. Just, just, just take, in your political conversations, just take that out of the sentence. Show respect to everyone. 
Do you realize that respect is the language of persuasion? If I don't respect you, why would I listen to you? And if I'm not listening to you, how would you ever persuade me of anything? If I think you're an idiot and everything you do confirms that and everything you, and the way you treat me and the words you say and the attitude that you have is just constantly coming against me and punching me and punching me and punching me. If there's zero respect in the way you communicate with me, why would I ever want to walk with you in anything? Why would I ever want to do anything you say? Show respect to everyone. Now, that's a challenge for us because our generation would say respect has to be earned, Chad. It has to be, you have to earn my respect. And you know, that may be true, but you know, God demonstrated his respect for us long before we ever earned a thing, didn't he? Didn't he? Romans chapter 2, it, it, it says such a beautiful thing. It says, or, or do you despise the riches of his goodness, his forbearance, and his long suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance. What's it take to talk about repentance? Well, before you can talk about repentance, you have to talk about somebody's sin. So at some level, God says in Romans chapter 2, his goodness, his respect for you leads you to this place where you can recognize that you're sinful, that the choices that you're making are destroying your relationships, destroying your life, and separating your, your, your life with God. And somehow out of his goodness, he leads you to repentance. In other translations, it says, and the kindness, it's the kindness, it's Romans 2, 4, the kindness of God leads you to repentance. We can show respect for other people because God showed respect for us first, not when we earned it or when we deserved it, but because we needed it and because respect is the language of persuasion. He captured my attention with his love for me. He captured my thoughts with his kindness toward me. He convinced me of my sinfulness by his sacrifice for me. And out of all of that, there was this moment where he gave me this gift of repentance. And I was able to say, God, I am not God. And I am so broken. Would you please forgive me and save me forever? Respect. It's the language of persuasion. Show respect to everyone. When I think about that, showing respect to everyone, you realize this, that, that when you win someone's heart, you'll win their vote, right? If you win someone's heart, you'll win their vote. And one of the most convicting things I see in Romans, chapter 2 still, one of the most convicting things I think can apply to us when we have our political conversations. Romans chapter 2, verse 24, Paul's talking to the Jewish people, and he's talking about salvation. But for us, we could apply it to politics. He says, for the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. It's such a convicting word. And wouldn't it be terrible if someday I made it to heaven and God, I walk in and instead of hearing, well done, my good and faithful servant, I hear, well done, you did a good job, except you, you won these arguments and you won this vote and you won this office, but you lost their heart, and you lost their respect, and they couldn't hear the gospel because of your politics. Wouldn't that be terrible? Win their heart, and you'll win the vote. Show respect to everyone. Here's two more. Be unified with other believers. In your, in your worldview, 
in the way you approach Scripture, as we submit to God first, be unified with other believers. It's such a beautiful thing that I've seen God do. Through his 12 disciples, you've got Matthew the tax collector, one of the 12 disciples. He's a tax collector. It means he works for Rome. He's considered a Roman collaborator working for the oppressive Roman government, oppressing the Jews through taxation. He's Matthew, identified as a disciple and the tax collector. And at the same time, there is another disciple whose name is Simon. And Simon is known as Simon the Zealot. The Zealot were the Jewish people who by vow had said, I will resist this Roman oppression to the death. So you've got essentially the I'm going to tax everybody person and the I'm going to resist the government to the death person. And they're both sitting comfortably together as disciples at the feet of Jesus. Be unified with other believers. This ought to be the place, not because of our politics, not because I'm right and you're wrong or you're smart and I'm dumb, not because I want to vote or you want to vote, not because of who we campaigned for or who won or who lost, not because of those reasons. This place, because of who Jesus is in your life and my life, this is the place where we as Democrats and as Republicans, as Sooners and Cowboys, this ought to be the place we can come and sit comfortably together at the feet of Jesus because there is this law of God that supersedes the law of man. And I'm going to submit in a government of, by, and for the people there will be these times when I yield my will to your will so that we will honor God and one another together. There's one last thing I want us to do, and every week, Every week we've had a mission life challenge. This is how we can live our mission life right now today. And so today I'm going to ask you, this week the mission life challenge is really very simple. I want you to pray for our political leaders. That's the mission life challenge. Pray for our political leaders. If you're looking at the sermon notes on the app or online, at the bottom of that there are links to websites for our, our state, local, and federal leaders. I'd love to you to, for you to go there. You can find email addresses for political leaders. You can find mailing addresses for our political leaders. I would love it. What if we were the church that was known as the church that was praying for all of these political leaders? I'd love for you to write a note and send a prayer. Send a written prayer to them. Now, I want to give you some instructions. As you send these written prayers to our political leaders, the, the political representatives, um, be careful how you pray. Make it less about the politics and make it more about the person. You know, don't, don't pray, oh, dear, you know, Senator, may God have mercy on your soul. You know, that's, that's, that's not the kind of prayer that we're looking for. Maybe you're in a tag agency and you have a bad experience. Don't send a little love letter to the manager of the tag agency saying, oh, may the fleas of a thousand camels infest your armpits. You know, that's not the kind of prayer we should be praying, but send a, send a note of encouragement. Pray for the person and leave the politics aside. Ask God to help them experience his presence. Ask God to surround them with people who are wise and understanding, who can feed them the fruit of the Spirit on a daily basis. Ask God to bless them you know, one of the things I think about God's favor and God's presence, specifically God's presence, is in his presence, there is wisdom. In his presence, there is correction. In his presence, there is justice and there is mercy. And whatever you may think about whoever's been elected to whatever seat, whatever decisions they may be, may be making, I can think of nothing better for them to have than the presence of God in their lives. 
because justice and mercy go together in his presence. And grace and love and law come together in his presence. Here's the last idea. It'll tie all of this together. For 300 years, Rome persecuted Christians. Do you know when they stopped? They didn't stop because of riots and protests. They didn't stop because the people all rose up and changed the law. That's not when they stopped. Do you know when they stopped? They stopped when Constantine placed his faith in Jesus Christ. That's when the persecution stopped. Win the heart, win the vote. I have a friend who's a pastor in another community. There was a business in that community that was legally permissible, but biblically we would call it morally and ethically reprehensible. It's the kind of business that generally Christian people and churches have stood up and protested against. It's the kind of business that, that we would try to pass laws against in the legislature. We would try to do all those things because it was legally permissible, but morally and ethically reprehensible. It, it was a kind of business that permeated his community. And this pastor did something unique. Instead of rallying his church to protest, he befriended the business owners of that business. They just got to know one another. <laughs> And out of that relationship, those business owners placed their faith in Jesus Christ. They got saved. And without a law and without a protest, and in this particular instance, without even a conversation about the nature of the business between the pastor and the business owner, they never talked about the business. God so transformed their heart that that business owner goes, I'm going to close this business forever without changing a law, a community was transformed for, for generations. And without changing a law, a life was changed for eternity. This is how the world changes. It is a little strange that we would believe that words on a page, isn't that essentially what a law is? that words on a page are enough to manage behavior. God himself in the entire Old Testament said, here's my law and you'll never live up to it. Here's my law and you'll never get it right. So he sent the one who would. And the end result is we can now submit and surrender our lives to the one who gets it everything right. So today, would you yield your will to his will so that we can honor him together? Let's pray again. Father, we love you and we're grateful to you for all that you've given to us. This is such a complicated topic. Simply the word submission is enough to cause people to wonder if what we're about to discuss can be trusted. And then when you put that in the context of government, oh, Father, it just gets that much more complicated. And so thank you that you are the one who sees through the complications that can lead us through these moments of conflict, those moments where we're uncertain, those moments when we are offended. You can lead us through each and every one of those so that we can yield our will to your will and follow after you. Let us be the generation of Christians who are far more concerned with winning hearts than we are with winning anything else. Let us be the people who with grace and with skill and with courage would confront every issue 
recognizing that there are people behind everyone. And so help us to be the ones who fall in love with your people and help lead them and serve them in a way that draws them close to you. Father, we love you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.